Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is Dark Age Warfare. This is a combination episode that covers five episodes on war bands, the methods of war, war gear, and of course, defensive equipment. So last time we talked about how Athelbert of Kent invaded the kingdom of Wessex and was pushed out by Chalin and his army. We don't have a lot of facts regarding that conflict. We aren't even told why they were fighting. But we do know that they were both destined to become Bretwaldas. And at the end of the conflict we're talking about, Athelbert was chased back into Kent. And presumably following this moment, Chalin earned the title of Bretwalda. So good for him. But there's a hell of a lot that goes into war beyond one king puffing up his chest and the other king saying, Come at me, bro. Much as I wish it were that simple and comical, real war is a great deal more complex than that. So now that we've talked a little bit about why we go to war, let's talk about the men who are fighting these battles. Of course, you have the kings. One of the old English terms for these kings, by the way, is Theoden. Yeah, like Theoden in Lord of the Rings. Another fun Anglo-Saxon term for king is kinning. The old English ing means scion, which is why you start to hear the sons of nobles being referred to as athelings. They're the sons or the scions of nobles. But in this case, kinning is the scion of the kin, which translates to the kindred or the family. This can be taken as either the ruling family, which would obviously call back to the family's tradition of rule, or it could be taken in the larger form of kindred, as in, the kinning is the son of the people. All the people. Anyway, so you have your kings or kinnings who would be fighting in battle, but it seems like in history we're always talking about kings. So what about the other people who are fighting in these battles? After all, these kings weren't fighting alone. So who were their companions, and how did they fit into this whole mess? And actually, this leads right into a question that I received from Darlene. She wanted to know if there was PTSD during this period. For those of you who aren't sure what I'm talking about, PTSD stands for post-traumatic stress disorder, and it's something that can affect people in any area of life, but in recent times it's become increasingly prevalent among soldiers. So did the Anglo-Saxons deal with PTSD? I don't know. And I don't think anyone can possibly know with our current level of understanding. My guess is that there probably were some negative effects that some Anglo-Saxon warriors dealt with following a battle. But was it similar to our modern concept of PTSD? We can't know for sure, but I suspect it probably wasn't. The reason that I say that is that psychological disorders are often closely tied to culture. And that's really important for us to talk about and address. In many ways, I think that the Anglo-Saxons are familiar. In fact, we've been speaking for months about their lives, and I've been repeatedly pointing to certain aspects that have persisted into our modern times. However, they were a different people, and in many ways, they're quite alien to us. And we need to keep that in mind. I mean, we're talking about people who lived 1,500 years ago. Sure, for many of us, they are our ancestors, and there are bits of culture that we've inherited from them. And of course, they had the same kind of brain that we do. But they were living in very different circumstances and had a different perspective on the world than we do. I have an example that might help explain this issue of differing cultures and how they affect behaviors. But it's a bit strange, so stick with me on this. There's a culture in Africa that believes there are magicians who can steal your penis with a handshake. Seriously. And this isn't just a fear. It's not like an urban legend where it's someone's brother's friend's cousin who knows somebody who had it happen to them. No, 
There are actually interviews out there with people who are absolutely convinced that they were the victims of this bizarre theft. And their friends and family will confirm that, yeah, Mr. Happy is significantly smaller now. It's a reality for them. And this belief in package-stealing magicians is so deeply held that if the people believe that you're one of these pervy wizards, your life is in danger. And fair enough, no one wants their junk stolen and, I'm not kidding here, allegedly smuggled into Europe inside a baguette. Now to us, that might sound a bit strange. However, to that culture, they might find it just as strange that there are some people in the U.S. who will starve themselves to death despite an abundance of food all around them, sometimes due to the fact that when they look in the mirror, they don't see themselves, but instead see a fat person. And these two cultures as well as these two disorders, exist on the earth at the exact same time. Yet their behaviors are quite alien to one another. With that in mind, do you really think you can accurately predict the cultural and psychological viewpoints of people who lived 1,500 years ago? It's not like we have an Anglo-Saxon DSM-4, for example. But obviously, I'm here to tell a story, and you're here to listen to one. So let's see if we can try and fashion together something of a story regarding how Athelbert and Chalin's warbands might have worked. But as always, keep in mind that our sources regarding this period are incredibly limited, and these people are rather strange in comparison with us. So let's talk about the warband. You might be imagining the warband as a large unit, maybe even an army, but that's probably not the case. The old assumption in the study of this area was that every able-bodied male, other than small children, would get called up to fight. But Stephen Paulington thinks this is bunk, and I'm inclined to agree with him, and we'll get to those reasons as we go forward in the show. So except in the extreme circumstances, it was probably just the warband fighting, not the militia drawn from the community. So let's start with the warband, or what Dr. David Simmons referred to in the Staffordshire Horde project as the King's Psychopathic Peacocks. And I have to admit, I love that term. But the thing is that the concept of the psychopath is actually quite modern. And even today, it's a rather controversial one. So I don't think it fits perfectly. I think what Dr. Simmons was essentially getting at with this term, though, was that we're dealing with the hardened killers of Anglo-Saxon society. And also that they were fantastically well-ornamented. Hence the peacock part. But terminology aside, it does make you wonder how these individuals would have dealt with putting their lives in danger and undoubtedly being ordered to kill another human being. As evidenced by the sheer bulk of studies that have been done on the effects of killing, as well as how to motivate an army to kill, it's not as easy as many of the films would have us believe. There's more to it than simply handing a sword to someone and pointing them in a direction. So with that in mind, let's talk about Hrothgar the Hypothetical. He is the eight-year-old son of a thane, a local nobleman. Up until now, he's been a child. But now he's eight, and things are changing for him. Much like when St. Cuthbert turned eight, Hrothgar is now taking part in a variety of physical and mental contests with his peers. Strength, agility, problem-solving, puzzles. I don't know if he knew it at the time, but what he was doing here is training his mind and his body to serve him in his future career and he probably knew what he wanted that career to be. At the very least, his father knew what he wanted it to be. To be a member of the war band. To live and fight with the king. Only the nobility could serve in this capacity. And in this service, Hrothgar could earn a great deal of honor, or what they would have called worth, for his family and himself. Even the word for war band, which is werod, 
called back to their duty and the prestige of the position. Werod, from the word werian, which meant to defend or protect. Working in the fields was fine for the commoners, but that was not the life for the son of a thane. However, simply being a son of a thane wouldn't be enough to earn him a place in the king's retinue. After all, it was an extremely small group. Usually, there were only six to ten warriors. Don't think about the warband in terms of an army. It was more like a strike force. It was good for heroic combat and small skirmishes, and it was also good for keeping the king safe, enforcing his laws, and dealing with things like cattle raiding and bandits. So even an extremely large warband would only number in the dozens. Anything larger would require calling up the third. So consequently, only the best could be selected for this task. And this makes sense, right? You don't want sickly little Unferth protecting the king's body. And Cuthwine? Well, he's always had that shifty look in his eye, and I'm not sure you want him sleeping near anyone, much less the king. And there's also the issue of cost, right? Basically, accepting the king, you can break society down to three groups, the praying class, the fighting class, and the working class. Keeping the gods happy is necessary, naturally. You don't want plagues or dust clouds mucking up your day. But warriors? They aren't placating the gods. What value did they bring to justify pulling them out of the fields and providing them with incredibly expensive equipment and training, and then allowing them to be part of the king's traveling court where they would live incredibly well? Except when they're drenched in blood, of course. I'm guessing that part wasn't that glamorous. Well, what they provided was protection for the local community in the event of raids and war. In essence, the warband was the king's bodyguard, his private army, and also the police force. They allowed for the expansion of territory, the seizure of resources from rivals, and the enforcement of local laws and customs. Of course, the degree upon which you'd benefit from these warriors would depend on your station, but the point is that although they were expensive, they were also quite useful, provided that they were effective. So you really only want the best of the community to be part of that group. You want to get the most bang for your buck, essentially. And that meant the right social class, obviously, which Hrothgar already had locked down. But he also needed to have the right physical traits. In that regard, he was lucky. He wasn't born with any trouble regarding his senses. He could see and hear just fine, for example. He wasn't extremely short, nor was he sickly like Unferth. And he was always rather strong for his age. And that's important. Strength, or strengo in Old English, is one of the traits that warriors were judged on. But it's not the only thing. As Hrothgar was competing with his peers in games and challenges, he would also be judged on his mental traits. If he wasn't too bright, or showed an inability to follow orders, or lacked the necessary temperamental qualities, basically if he was a big softy like your favorite podcaster, then he wouldn't be selected. If this was the case, given his strength, he might just be better suited to working as a smith or something like that. So he needs to have the right mental qualities. Great. But how do you figure that out? On the one hand, figuring out whether someone was smart enough for battle or whether they were too rebellious to work in a group would be pretty easy to determine just through observation. But what about those ephemeral temperamental qualities? What do you do there? Well, we don't have a lot of resources to turn to in order to find out how the training of young warriors nor their initiation would have worked. But later Norse traditions might have had some similarities to pagan Anglo-Saxon times. So we're going to make a guess here and assume that it was similar. So it's possible that Hrothgar might have been told that they were about to be attacked, or maybe that there was some sort of enemy, or fiend in Old English, that he needed to kill. 
And then the warriors might have pitted him against this mock fiend and waited to see if he struck it down. To me, this sounds like it was a bit like a haunted house with a practice dummy added in. Hrothgar, there's a bandit in that cave, and we needed to go kill him. And in the cave, amongst the shadows so you could just barely see him, is the dummy of a man. If Hrothgar attacked the dummy, then he's in. If he just screamed for a while and then fell over, like in Blair Witch, then he's out. And we'll probably have to go stand in the corner. So my guess is that if it played out like that, it was probably pretty spooky for Hrothgar. Especially since the older warriors probably had the time to really build it up in full ghost story fashion. But our young hero was quite courageous and smote his straw enemies to the left and to the right, proving that he had yet another quality that was prized among warriors. Courage, or Elen in Old English. Now there was a third quality that was desired among warriors, but it's probably hard to spot at the outset. And hell, it's pretty hard to define in general. It's called Megan. And no, it's not some young Irish lass. Megan translates roughly to power or latent ability. It's sort of like the will to act, but not quite. It's not quite luck, either, but it's sort of indistinct like luck is. The best description I can give, I think, is that it's the ability to be successful. I suppose that makes sense. Napoleon was famous for wanting to know if his generals were lucky, for example. So it might have been something like that. But spotting that ability in Hrothgar at the age of 8 was probably extremely difficult, if not impossible. So it was probably something that would only become apparent once he was a hardened warrior. But anyway, back to Hrothgar. He was making his father quite proud. He had Strengo, he had Alen, and he had the right family background. And hopefully, when he gets older, he'll have Megan. And so he was accepted into training. How he was accepted isn't clear. But what we can be relatively certain of is that it wasn't a democratic decision where the community gathered and said, yeah, let Hrothgar out of his plow duties and hand him some fancy equipment. This was definitely made at the upper echelons of society. But whether this was the purview of only the king, or whether it was the warband and other nobles who were allowed to take part in that decision making, isn't really clear. But just because he was accepted into training doesn't mean that he was a member of the Werod. He hadn't taken his oath yet. He wasn't given a ring. But it probably was extremely exciting. I mean, this was an incredibly exclusive and wealthy club, and he's trying to get access to it, and they've shown at least a little bit of interest in what he's capable of. I like to imagine Hrothgar thinking to himself, keep it together, don't fanboy all over these guys, just stay cool. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. I mean, it really had to be exciting. And you have to keep in mind how incredibly cool these guys were. I mean, they were wealthy, which we've discussed in earlier episodes about how that translates to cool. But they were also set apart from the rest of society, which carries with it its own sense of cool. And one place where I wonder if we're seeing the echoes of that sense of cool is in the graves of the Anglo-Saxons. And to be clear, this is speculation. But we find these graves of men being buried without battle wounds and being interred with weapons. And yet the weapons are incredibly badly made and lacked any marks that would have come from battle. So that's rather strange. But... If the king and the warband had been the cool kids in Anglo-Saxon society, maybe that's why we're seeing so many of these warrior graves. Because there was a sense that to be important in this life, and in the next, you needed a weapon. After all, the warband would have been quite impressive. And scary. In discussing the warrior culture in England, Paulington brought up a rather interesting sketch of societal organizations in his books. 
Essentially, he said that in society, you have nobles and commoners. Commoners are split up into free and unfree individuals, and the nobles are split into warriors and rulers, the rulers meaning priests and kings. So the warriors were right up in the upper echelons, and the king was also a warrior. He wasn't just sitting in an office and hearing reports about the battle. He was right in the thick of it. So yeah, these guys were cool as hell. And people, including Hrothgar, might have wanted to emulate them. And that could account for the strange and shabby warrior graves. Alternatively, weapons are expensive. And maybe rather than burying the weapons, they just handed off the real weapons to the other warriors or heirs, and then just buried mock weapons with the newly deceased warrior. It's hard to say exactly what was going on there. But I think what we can say is that these guys were rock stars, and Hrothgar was training with them. So chances are, when he started his training, he probably only used mock weapons, like wooden weapons. Or maybe he just used a spear and a shield to begin with. Based on many of the traditions we've seen, gaining bladed weapons wouldn't have been an easy feat. And often it only came through heredity, defeating an enemy, or as a gift for service. Hell, even in pop culture, you see that playing out especially in Tolkien. Sting comes to Bilbo after defeating the trolls. Narsil comes to Aragorn through his birthright. And Sting is later given as a gift to Frodo after years of, let's be honest, taking care of a rather crotchety hobbit, which I think should count as service. So Hrothgar probably had to deal with training with wooden weapons for a while, since his dad was still alive and kicking and probably was unwilling to hand over his sword to this untested youth. And that was probably for the best anyways, since it would allow him to build up strength and skill. And ultimately, that was probably Hrothgar's day-to-day -day life for quite a while. Training and living with a Werod and any other trainees. And if the king did call upon the Werod to fight, he probably would have come as a knight, or knight in Old English. Now this isn't what we commonly think of as knights. Knights and knaves, knappa in Old English, were male youths who seemed to have behaved sort of like squires and were probably somewhere between the ages of 8 and 13, since manhood, according to St. Guthlac and St. Wilfred, appears to have started around 14 or 15. And Anglo-Saxon laws also did differentiate the crimes of adults from the crimes committed by those under 15 years old. So chances are it was between 8 and about 14 or 15. But he was a knight. Sort of. Now I could guess, and this really is just a guess, that there probably was also a great deal of training of the mind that was going on during this period where he was a knight. In general, Anglo-Saxon life took the perspective of don't kill people. And that's not unusual. Nor is it a bad thing. In fact, it's one of those things that makes them sort of familiar. The population had probably been told from an early age to avoid killing. You had feuds, wear guilds, or even just the social issues that came with being that guy who slays his friends while drunk. And no one wants to be that guy. After all, he never gets invited to the best feasts. And all of these things would conspire to create an atmosphere of don't kill, right? Well, that's for the general population. From what we hear of in Beowulf, it sounds like they had a different sort of ethos within the Werod. And that would make sense. When you look at Beowulf and the other sources and try and apply it to all Anglo-Saxon life, you really start to wonder how these people could have survived with all the drunks running around slaying their buddies and starting feuds. But if Beowulf is more reflective of the warrior aristocracy, then things start to make a little more sense. The hardened killers might run the risk of killing their friends when tanked up, but would some random farmer be likely to cut his friend's throat? I'm not convinced. 
And I suspect that after a particularly good feast, he'd probably just try and ride a sheep like a pony. And this could also be reflected in how the Werod lived. By looking at their job description, and also by looking at how they are referenced in literary sources, the Werod strikes me as a society apart. Sure, they traveled with the king, and had a favored seat within his kingdom. And they were enforcing his laws, and were almost always traveling inside their homeland. But they weren't part of the day-to-day -day life. I mean, they were the king's bodyguard, so they needed to be with him all the time. And this was a time when the court was traveling from place to place. So I find it highly unlikely that they would have been living in villages with their extended families like your average Anglo-Saxon. They might have settled down in winter, but in general, they were probably on the move. And that robbed them of having the same sort of experiences as the people that they encountered. I mean, the Werod weren't working in the fields. And while some of them might have furtively been stealing a glance at the pretty daughter of a churl, it would have been quite a different experience, as well as a different power differential. Their lives were something else entirely. They were with the king. They were on the move. So within such an insular society, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to suppose that they began to develop a different sort of ethos than your average Anglo-Saxon. And that might have been necessary. You don't want the farmer to run around killing people. But conversely, you don't want your werod to refuse to kill when ordered. So that heroic and somewhat blood-drenched lifestyle that's hinted at in Beowulf might have reflected the way the Werod saw themselves and the value they placed on certain virtues and actions, but didn't reflect the way the average Anglo-Saxon looked in the world. And if that's the case, my guess is that Hrothgar was probably awash in this kind of stuff at this point in his training. Poems and sagas could well have reinforced this sort of thinking, as well as the power of peer pressure. And he's in a small, insular society, so there might have been a certain element of what we call in our modern day groupthink going on in there as well. He was being remolded into someone who'd be willing to die in place of his king. And his sense of morality was probably being specifically designed to allow for that. However, these values were probably also being reinforced by society as a whole. For example, everyone was in fear of being exiled. I mean, we've already spoken about how dodgy travel was and how the fear and mistrust of the outsider was prevalent during this period. So that was universal. But the fear of outliving your lord in battle? That was probably a strictly Werod value. Yet it was probably also enforced by everyone, not just the members of the Werod. And the thing is that it was almost as bad as being exiled. You would be treated with extreme suspicion by everyone you encountered, as the people of your homeland would find it very strange and shameful that you survived and did not exact vengeance upon your lord's killer, or in Old English, Bana. So even though it's strictly part of the Werod ethos, it's enforced by everyone. So they're separate from society, but not fully cut off. And so Hrothgar probably spent the next six or seven years of his life learning to fight like a warrior, think like a warrior, and behave like a warrior. And then sometime around 14 or 15, having proven that he was worthy, he would have been invited to take his oath and become a member of the Werod. And this oath might have come with a gift from the king, perhaps even a sword, if Hrothgar's stingy father hadn't yet handed down his own sword to the young warrior. This act, the giving of the sword, would have been more than the king simply arming his new warrior. It would have reinforced the sense of mutual obligation between Hrothgar and the king. And it also gave a sense of tradition, 
since this was an ancient ritual that they were taking part in, the gift-giving. This was more than two men. This was something ancient. And providing a sword as a gift would have further enforced that sense of continuity, as that sword was probably handed down through many warriors. So this wasn't just your sword. You were carrying with you every warrior who used it, every oath that had been sworn upon it. This is different from sentimental value, since sentimental value is deeply personal. This would have been something that would have been recognized by the community as a whole, adding to the gift's worth tremendously. It's also likely that the oath would have been accompanied with a ring being given to Hrothgar, as the king was the giver of rings. And right now you're probably imagining a finger ring, or maybe you're imagining the one ring. But we see rings that are fitted to swords, and we also see hilts that have places for rings to be attached to. And this is significant since the ring would have been attached to the same place where the warrior laid his hand on the sword while swearing to be loyal. It would be a constant reminder. And now, at the age of 14 or 15, Hrothgar was a man of the Werod. And you might be thinking, oh god, that's awful. All that time preparing and now he only has about 10 years left to live? since the average life expectancy of this period is somewhere around 25 years, depending on the area. However, numbers can be misleading. That average is actually quite low due to the high levels of childhood mortality. If you reach your 20s, you had a pretty good chance of reaching your 40s, for example. Anyway, Hrothgar, at 14 or 15 years old, was now a man, and he had taken his oath. And that's quite important. It bound Hrothgar to the Werod, and those ties would be reflected in the way he lived. While traveling, they would have trained together, eaten together, lived together. They would have been a tight-knit group. There's no evidence that the Werod dressed similarly, nor is there any evidence of uniform heraldry or something along those lines. But that wouldn't have been a problem for Hrothgar. He didn't need an insignia to let him know friend from foe. In battle, he would have known every one of his comrades. And not just the way they looked, but how they fought and behaved. They would have been a very well-organized group, so heraldry just wouldn't have been necessary. He also would have had a favored spot, as befitting his station, at the king's feasts. And we've already spoken a great deal about feasts in earlier episodes, but these events would have ritualized their lives and reinforced the social order, as well as the heroic nature of their lives. They would have provided the king the opportunity to thank Hrothgar, the Werod, and all his supporters, and also would have given the Werod the opportunity to promise to undertake tasks and make oaths. And that's really where I want to join young Hrothgar. So he's a newly oathed warrior, and now he's part of one of these gigantic feasts. And you might recall they could last days, and they were not the most sober of events. In fact, ale was part of the ritual nature of these events. So here we have Hrothgar and his new companions, and he's flush with the pride that comes with being a member of the king's Werod. And he's drunk. And gifts have been given. And these warriors that he's trained with and admired for his entire life are sharing stories of battle. And some now are standing and making promises to the king to do great things or die in the attempt. And whenever these claims are made, there's a great cheer and the king thanks them for their service. And Hrothgar, though he's now a member of the Werod, really hasn't earned any worth for himself yet. He's still green. And he's a thane's son. 
and he's carrying with him this great named blade that the king himself had given him. To not have any worth was shame in itself, as evidenced by Beowulf casually dismissing a critic who didn't have any great deeds attached to his own name. So Hrothgar really needed to make a name for himself, but not just for himself, but also for his ancestors and his future descendants. He was just part of a great line, and he had to do them justice. His father, his father's father, they were all watching. And he knows that to promise a deed and return alive without accomplishing that task would bring great shame and infamy upon him and his family. So if he speaks up, he'll have to do what he swears to do. But the booze is flowing, and everyone around him is heroic. And he really wants to impress them. So he stands. So last time we were speaking about Hrothgar the Hypothetical and how he became a member of the Warband, and how they were probably a group apart with their own sets of morals and codes. But there were a few bits that weren't included in the narrative that we were weaving with young Hrothgar that I think you'll find really interesting. So let's tackle them. The first thing to mention is that the warband that Hrothgar joined was the warband of the leader of the community. In this case, the Kinning. But later on, for example by the 700s, warbands wouldn't exclusively work for Kinnings. Rather, they would also be held by powerful individuals within the kingdom, such as the Athelings, which were basically the princes. This is something of a natural progression of the original organization, since the warband is still being centered around an individual person and his, or very rarely, her needs. But that transition is important because it reflects a change in the purpose of the warband, since right now, in addition to providing individual protection for the kinning and fighting his battles, the warband was also enforcing his laws, sort of like an early police force. Well, that's all well and good when you have just one police force, but when you have multiple heavily armed police forces all loyal to different people and also probably acting under different codes, well, things can get a bit hairy. And that could be why we're seeing the right to wage war centralizing exclusively around the Kinnings, even before the proliferation of warbands among the nobles. Which actually seems like a good safeguard against having an absurdly chaotic kingdom with random wars popping up because some noble got a wild hair up his butt. But it is another indication that we're transitioning from an egalitarian society to a stratified society. Things weren't equal, though. Think of it more like things were transitioning from a system that reflected anarchy to one that reinforced a hierarchy. And the warbands were a part of that transition. Anyway, at this point in time, the warbands were the domain of Kinnings. Oh, and let's see if you were paying attention to last week's episode. Can you remember the Anglo-Saxon word for the warband? Werod, or Hearthwerod, if we're being official. Now, even though the Werod was solely the domain of the Kinning at this point in history, it doesn't mean that the Kinning's power was absolute. In fact, it seems like in the early periods, Kinnings were chosen rather than divinely appointed. True, they just happened to have mostly been picked from the ruling dynasty, but the reality of the situation is that Kinnings ruled because the powerful members of society had accepted them as their overlord. Now, there wasn't an election, but it was definitely by virtue of support. And if that support waned, the Kinning was in trouble, and he would have needed his warband more than ever. As a consequence, 
The Werod would have been a bit of a safeguard for his power base, especially considering that internal factional warfare would have generally only involved battles with a few dozen people on either side. After all, only free men could bear arms at this point, and calling up the Ferd in that situation would have been pretty unlikely. So most fights involved practice warriors and nobility. So you're looking at probably only between 50 and 100 warriors in the entire conflict. Consequently, a dozen highly trained warriors in the Werod could potentially tip the scales in favor of the Kinning. But the Werod had their own motives and also their own culture. And I'd like to chat a little bit more about the culture that was within this warrior society because it's rather interesting and they weren't just a bunch of mindless killers and psychopaths. For example, they had warrior poets. All too often, people imagine Anglo-Saxons, and especially Anglo-Saxon warriors, as oafish thugs covered in dirt, eating roast meat off the bone, and then mopping up the gravy with their beards. I guess what I'm saying is people have a romantic vision of the Anglo-Saxons. And we've already been knocking down that assumption. After all, we already know that they were cleaner than you might have imagined. But the truth is, they were also more cultured. And the warrior poet is part of that. And something to keep in mind when we're talking about those warrior poets is that the Anglo-Saxons were an oral culture. And before you ask about it, no, there really weren't all that many runes in the pre-Christian era. There are some swords that have an arrow on the hilt that might have been a T rune, and there are the occasional items that do have runes inscribed upon them, but they're few and far between. So generally, things just weren't being written down in the pre-Christian era. And that's probably because the written word just wasn't integral to their society. And as a consequence of this, memory played a much more prominent role in history, law, and just day-to-day -day living. If you couldn't remember the stories or laws or the proper rites for the gods, well, you'd be in trouble. And rhyme scheme and meter can often aid with memorization, so it isn't surprising that poets held an important place during this period. So basically, poets were the cultural repositories for the people, and as a result, they held prominent positions in their communities. And you'll remember that the warband was taken from the highest classes of society, so it isn't too shocking that there was some overlap between the poets and the warriors, since they were both pulling from the upper classes. Of course, not all warriors were poets. But it seems like if a warrior was a talented poet, he would be highly prized and singled out as a person of great worth. And as you might remember, that's the Anglo-Saxon word for honor. So being a warrior poet was a big deal. And that makes sense, given that their poetic gifts were given to them by Woden, the god of inspiration, also the All-Father and a god associated with death. So I suppose it would make sense to have warrior poets held in high esteem. But not all poets were created equally. For example, a poet, or shop in Old English, which comes from the word to create, well, a poet might take the role of Thyle, like Unferth in Beowulf, where it was his place to challenge claims and voice public opinion, whether positive or negative. Poets could have also had a religious aspect, as they could recite the tales of the gods. A poet in the hall would have been a sort of record-keeping for the worth or infamy of the nobles in the land. They probably also functioned as a sort of enforcer of the moral code, as they could punish those who failed to live up to their duties with satires. For example, you can imagine a poet singing a scathing satire about a lord who fails to pay his warband and, of course, his court poet. In many ways, the Anglo-Saxon poet wasn't terribly different from the Norse skald, 
which is a Norse word which translates to he who knows and chooses words. And that's probably not too surprising given the close cultural contact. Another Anglo-Saxon term for poet is hlethersmith, or laughtersmith. And we can take that to mean that not all of their work was somber or brutal. They were also known to sing laments, ballads, and interestingly, folkraden, which translates to the rules of the folk. Maybe they were some form of early lawyers, or at least early versions of law books. And don't forget that some of these men were members of the Werod. The point is that these men were not brutish oafs. Skill with words was highly prized, so song and poetry would have been practiced by these men alongside their martial training. Imagine the warrior's hall filled with these glittering warriors, singing and laughing, many of whom are likely composing poems about the gods, their deeds, the deeds of their fellows, and even the deeds of their lord. Thugs, these men were not. And you can see that attention to the meaning and subtlety of language in how they spoke of warfare, which, of course, was something that was very close to them. They had a nuanced approach to discussing war, and I'd like to share three common Old English prefixes that'll help explain that for you. The first is bidu, and this translates to the grim reality of fighting. The second is hitho, which translates to the destructive terror of battle, all the horrifying blood and guts of it. And the third is Hera, which is sometimes referred to as Hild, Guth, or Wig. And that translates to the fame or glory of war. So when you later hear of Wolf Hera, you'll have an idea of what Penda had in mind when he named his son. Wolf's glory, or Wolf's fame. But you can think of these three descriptions of war in terms of film, I suppose. Bidu would be a bit like Black Hawk Down. Hetho would be a bit like Platoon, I suppose. And Hera would be like 300. And I really don't think you'd have that level of distinction when talking about battle without having individuals who spent a great time thinking about both the meaning of words as well as the experience of war. I mean, hell, we don't have that level of distinction in our modern language. The reality is that the early Anglo-Saxon warrior was a great deal more complex than the simplistic version that exists in pop culture. And that makes sense. After all, we're looking at a blend of old Celtic ways, the Roman ways, and the Germanic ways. There tends to be a lot of focus upon the Germanic roots of the Anglo-Saxon warrior culture, but don't forget that the migrants were settling into Romano-British and at least residually Celtic culture. And the cultural interchange between those people went both ways. For example, towards the end of the Western Roman Empire, Europe was becoming highly militarized, and the military actually had more power than the government. If you're looking for an example of this, you can just look to the number of times that legions propped up an emperor. Or you can look to generals like Stilicho, who was basically running the show. Or you can look at how the governors of Britannia functioned as generals during the Roman occupation. Well, that elevation of the warrior didn't just disappear. You had all manner of kingdoms popping up after the collapse of the Western Empire, and many of them called back to Rome as an ideal or a source for their authority. But when you see engravings and imagery of the post-Roman kings, what do you generally see? It isn't leaders in togas, nor is it the regalia of emperors generally. No, it's war gear and the imagery of generals. The lesson learned from the late Roman Empire was that government is run by militaristic individuals, 
not a disarmed group of civilians. And that's just one aspect that was pulled in. It's possible that the newly accepted members of the Werod might have been marked. The reason I say that is that some Germanic tribes would mark young warriors who'd not yet killed an enemy as a mild mark of shame. For example, there were some tribes that wouldn't let young warriors shave until they killed someone, so their patchy beards would let everyone know how green they were. Others would make them wear specific ornaments, such as slave rings, until they'd slain a foe in battle. Now this was the early Germanic tribes, but one does wonder if something like that continued into the warband. Anyway, the point is that the warrior culture that we're talking about isn't a simple transplant of Germanic culture, but rather we're seeing something of a melange of various cultures that created a distinctively English approach to war and warriors. Now speaking of those warriors, it's important to point out that they weren't born warriors. Hunting would have helped them become a better warrior in general due to physical traits such as stealth, dexterity, and strength. But using a weapon in battle would be different from stalking a deer through the woods. After all, it's rare to find a deer that's armed with a sword. So they undoubtedly went through extensive training. We often think of training as using a particular weapon and getting stronger, and well, that's pretty much it. But training for battle would have been much more specific than that. For example, Fighting in a shield wall would have been quite different from fighting on horseback. Fighting on a ship would have been different from storming a castle. Fighting in the open would have been different from fighting on a bridge or in a narrow hallway. These warriors would have been trained in specific areas of combat and also in specific roles. And this actually could be why cavalry wasn't a feature in Anglo-Saxon warfare. Maybe no one was training in it. Now something else I should point out is that this group wasn't necessarily all-male. It's true that the term warrior, as well as just the image of the werod, is generally approached as being a male activity. And the werod might have been exactly that. Maybe. However, there are traditions of women warriors in both Celtic culture, as well as in the Germanic culture that mixed into Britannia. Really, it was only the Romans that fully excluded women from the battlefield. We've already spoken about some of the Celtic warrior women, but there were also Germanic traditions. For example, they had women warriors known as shield maidens. And then you had the legendary Valkyrie, who were the mythic embodiments of probably actual female devotees of Woden. Some argue that based on early sources, at least at the beginning, these women would sacrifice captives to their god, to Woden. There were no slouches. Furthermore, some Anglo-Saxon burials of women are found with weapons, not to mention that you had later leaders, such as the Lady of Mercia, who undercut the idea that only men were capable in war. But I should be careful to point out that capability doesn't necessarily guarantee membership into the Werod. The Werod was a highly specialized and prestigious group, and symbols of power were centralizing around male members of society at this point. If there were female members of the Werod, they would have been rare. However, we do see later references to women acting as war leaders, so it's not impossible that there might have been female members within the Werod, at least on occasion. Furthermore, when looking at the graves of the Anglo-Saxon period, we don't see a ton of evidence of tasks being heavily segregated by gender, which might indicate that there was movement that could allow for women to rise up into the Werod or other military capacities. Now, to be fair, it is true that grave goods are strongly differentiated in this period between men and women, 
with women being generally buried with a variety of domestic goods. But we shouldn't assume that that meant that women did all the domestic chores and then the men were running around being warriors or something. That's an assumption that has infected a lot of scholarship since the Victorian era, but it isn't necessarily grounded in fact. For example, John Hines notes that there isn't a difference between male and female skeletons found in Anglo-Saxon cemeteries that would reflect a difference in duties with regard to manual labor. That's really important because if they are doing different tasks, we'd see differences in their skeletons. So consequently, we shouldn't assume that only women did domestic chores while the men were always out hunting, farming, or being warriors. The duties were shared though it is likely that there were some duties that fell only on one sex or the other. But in general, it looks like it was a team effort, and the burials were probably just an indication of a cultural elevation of certain gender roles or imagery. We see the same thing with weaponry. While we see more men than women being buried with weapons, many of those same men don't have any obvious battle wounds. This is probably because of a cultural focus upon the image of a warrior, rather than an indication that the person was actually a warrior. Hell, Hines points out that the weapons that were buried with these men generally don't even show the scars of battle, and that the quality of the iron was surprisingly poor for warfare. I think these were ceremonial, possibly part of that leftover Roman habit of fetishizing warrior culture. Of course, like everything from this period, this wasn't uniform. Things were different depending on where you were, and there were outliers. For example, in Cambridgeshire, there's a cemetery that had a number of skeletons that do, in fact, look like they have injuries from weapons. And I don't want to be misunderstood as saying that there wasn't violence and warfare in this era. I'm simply saying that when we find a man with a weapon, or a woman with shears, it doesn't necessarily reflect that the man was a warrior and the woman was only working in the home. Chances are, for this era, they were both just farmers and parents. But it's possible that if there was a battle, that the woman might have joined the men in battle. We just don't know. But there's at least some level of indication that there wasn't a strict ban on women fighting in war. I mean, we've even found weapons among the grave goods of female burials. And we have historical confirmation that the Anglo-Saxons had warrior women of their own, which we'll get to a bit later in our story. So like we just discussed, the presence of a weapon, especially a spear, on its own doesn't really impart any sort of membership amongst a warrior brotherhood at this point in history, nor do we have evidence that women were strictly banned from acting as warriors. So next time that you read about a warrior grave in a headline, read it with a critical eye. It could well be a warrior, but sometimes the journalist is just making huge leaps for the sake of a good headline and is basing it mostly on the presence of a weapon. Okay, another aspect of warrior culture that didn't get mentioned last week was the spiritual side. One of the things that makes Anglo-Saxon warrior culture seem alien to me, at least, is it seems like they've looked at death a bit differently. In our modern day, the approach to death is often one of regret that it wasn't avoided. And often there's a sense of, could something have been done to avoid this? The only time we seem comfortable with death is when someone has lived a very long life. And then the statement tends to be, well, he or she lived a good life and saw a lot. And so we console ourselves with that. But for everyone else, in addition to the sorrow of losing someone, we have the salt in the wound of the fact that the death is unfair and it should have been prevented. Well, things were chaotic for the Anglo-Saxons, and the impression that we get from the scattered sources that we have is that they saw death more along the lines of, you have a time, and when that time comes up, 
you're gonna die. Think about it sort of like the old soldier adage of somewhere out there is a bullet with my name on it. Essentially, you're just fated to die at a certain point. But interestingly, mixed in with that, it seems like there is a sense of a semi-guided and malleable sense of fate. The term for this was the weird, and the weird favored the brave. For example, in Beowulf, if your courage stayed strong, the weird could intervene in your fate and let you live through another battle. Maybe your time was up, but if you were super brave, maybe the weird would let you stick around for a while. And this was actually an excellent way to maintain morale and cohesion in battle. You might think that by running away, you'll save your life, but you won't. If it's your time, the only thing that can possibly save you is to stand your ground and show no fear. And with an outlook like that, I really do wonder what their battles must have looked like and how far a fight would go before the Werod would break. But it wasn't just the weird that could have played a role in maintaining morale. There were also the gods and other supernatural effects. Religion was alive and well long before the Anglo-Saxons were converted to Christianity and on occasion we're lucky enough to get glimpses of their beliefs. Bede tells us of how a priest of the old gods, who he described as an elder bishop, destroyed his pagan temple. What Bede failed to realize is that the elder bishop was essentially doing a larger version of a classic rite of Woden. Essentially, it was the rite of death by burning and stabbing. Bede tells us of how the priest mounted a stallion, set fire to the temple, and then hurled a spear, the weapon associated with Woden, into the building. It's all very dramatic. And what it tells us is that the old gods were still a factor, even in the days of Bede. And in the 6th century? Our century? Oh yeah, they were definitely involved. And Woden was probably the biggest mover and shaker. We see references of him and his symbols all over the place. In fact, there is even a one-eyed god on the Sutton Hoo helmet, and Woden was famously one-eyed. In fact, the word Grim means hooded one, which is another name for Woden, and there are earthenworks during the Anglo-Saxon period that bore names such as Grim's Ditches, or in Old English, Grim's Dyke. Woden was serious business. But so was his son, Thor, or as they would have called him, Thunor. Thor is often represented by the appearance of hammers on amulets and artifacts, but he's also shown in what was known as Thor's hammer, but is now known as a swastika. So if you ever see an old Anglo-Saxon weapon with a swastika, it's dedicated to Thor. It's not Nazi in any way. And you can also find locations that are named after him, like Thundersley and Thunderfield. And why not? He was a powerful warrior god. But it wasn't just gods. Sometimes it was animal aspects of gods, or even just animals themselves. Shapeshifting is an old European tradition. There are a surprising number of stories that involve shapeshifting of one sort or another, or even just the acquisition of part of an animal, such as the wolf's pelt, that allow the warrior to gain the aspects of that animal. And in that latter account, you'd also be taking on some of Woden's power as well, since the wolf is associated with Woden. So bonus there. Anyway, we have both shapeshifting as well as people wearing wolf pelts, which doesn't sound too far from a rather famous Germanic tradition. The Bear Shirt Warriors. You know them as Berserker Warriors. They were known for going into a state of ferocious ecstasy in battle. And actually, this sort of battle rage wasn't just a Germanic thing. 
The most famous of Celtic warriors, Cahullin, was known for going into a state similar to this, and he too would transform into a monstrous figure in battle. Now, Norse tradition has these berserker warriors living outside of normal society, and also outside of the rules contained within it, which is a good thing if you ask me. Because from all indications, it seems like these were essentially warriors who really cranked the dial up to 11. But that's the Norse. What about an Anglo-Saxon Britain? Were there berserkers running around? Well, you do see images of wolves and werewolves in Anglo-Saxon times. And they persist even after the influence of Christianity would have suppressed any sort of berserker cultural beliefs. So were wolves Britain's answer to the bear shirts? I don't know. I'll say this, though. It certainly doesn't seem like taking on the aspect of an animal was a terrible thing in Anglo-Saxon society. Animals were all over their weapons and other accoutrements. Hell, we even see the word wolf in a variety of names in Anglo-Saxon times, including Athelwolf and Wolfstan. Wolves seem to be rather popular. And that's not just because they were pack hunters. Like I said earlier, the wolf also had a strong association with Woden, and wolf warriors had a role in ritual and mythology in northern regions. The wolves emphasized Woden's role as a god of death, as they were known for preying upon the weak and the sick. To have a wolf associated with you probably would have set you apart, but also would have struck fear into your enemies on the battlefield. And that could be why we see wolves feature in weapons, armor, and of course, names. Another animal that we see referenced often is the raven. This too is an animal that's associated with Woden, due to Woden's two ravens, Hugen, which means thought, and Munin, which means memory. Actually, Woden is even known as the raven god in some sources. A warrior carrying the image of a raven might have wanted to take on the aspect of swiftness. Or perhaps they were seeking knowledge. After all, according to legend, Woden's ravens would fly off at dawn and then report back to him at lunchtime with what was going on in the world. It sounds like the ideal sigil for a scout, actually. Now, the last of the common animals that we see is the boar, which is associated with virility and masculinity. And it's also associated with Freyr, whose name translates to Lord. The boar often appears in literature and artifacts, and sometimes on items of armor. And it's thought that warriors who took on the aspect of the boar were hoping to safeguard their well-being. So what I've been trying to get at here is that Hrothgar and his fellow warriors were three-dimensional figures. They weren't just mindless killing machines. They showed reverence to their gods in their own ways. They had a fascinating way of viewing their own mortality. And they valued creative pursuits like poetry. They were more than simply their weaponry and their deeds in battle. And at least for me, that makes the raucous and ale-filled feasting hall all the more vibrant and interesting. Something to keep in mind is how different life in Britain was from the continent. In Francia, it seems like outright battle was generally avoided unless there was no other option, and instead raiding and other non-conventional forms of warfare were employed. But in Britain, there's a surprisingly regular amount of battles, especially when we fully get into the Heptarchy. Now this could be a cultural side effect that came with the elevation of the Werod. It could also be because of the fact that ruling was through consensus of the powerful men in the kingdom rather than through divine right. So sometimes you have disagreements on who should rule. 
It could also be because of the cultural split, as well as the sheer number of kingdoms in Britain, and the friction that that would have created. Or it could be less of a difference in reality, and instead just mostly a difference in the record, because of the individual biases of the chroniclers and what they chose to emphasize. It really could be any number of things, and I can't tell you for sure what it was. But you can't deny that there are an increasingly large number of battles that are mentioned as we get into the last half of the 6th century, and it's only going to keep going that way. And so warfare, and the Werod, will continue to get more important as we go forward. And with that in mind, I want to stress again how strange it was that these towns weren't fortified. Economic centers were clearly important. After all, Mercia, Kent, and Wessex would fight many battles over the major trading center in the south, London. Yet it wasn't until Alfred that fortified strongholds, what they would have called burrs, would become more common. I'm not saying that there were no defenses because there were some fortified locations. And later we're going to see a massive construction project that's going to establish a boundary between England and Wales. But in general, towns just weren't being fortified at this point. So why not? Well, it might be because of the sense of fair play that we talked about last week. It could also be because of the way war was conducted. For example, if Halsall is right, the armies wouldn't siege towns, which was expensive, time-consuming, and risky for both sides. But rather, they would go to known locations and essentially challenge the opposing force to come to battle. And if they couldn't be bought off with a fall, then they'd fight it out. Halsall also supposes that there might have been specific routes that the armies would take, which again would allow them to easily find each other. He points to Old English charters that describe boundaries in terms of military paths, such as Ferd Street, which translates to Army Street, and Harapath, which translates to Rider's Path. Now this sounds strange to me, but this is an alien culture, so I don't see why it's impossible. And Paulington suggests that these might have been the routes taken by guards and officials of the kingdom. And if that's the case, an invading force would know exactly where to go to meet the opposing force in battle. So maybe sieging just wasn't necessary to settle military conflicts. And maybe, culturally, it wasn't seen as honorable or fair. Or maybe open conflict was just how they trained. Or maybe it's something else entirely different that dictated the shift in how warfare was conducted, such as politics and insecurity. I mean, if you had a tenuous grip on power, maybe you don't want your thanes to be reinforcing their towns. They might start to get ideas. And given how important trade was, considering the number of fights that center around it, maybe there was just a general agreement to not lay the trade centers to waste because, well, you just have to come back through and rebuild them afterwards. It's really difficult, if not impossible, to say what was going on there other than to point out the fact that reinforcing, sieging, and raising towns just wasn't the norm at this point. The order of the day was small-scale field warfare. So let's imagine what this might have looked like. And to do so, we're going to need to rely mostly on the scattered literary and pictorial sources that we have available. So assuming that the two armies had a mutual sense of respect and propriety, it seems like the battle wouldn't immediately begin upon the two armies meeting. But rather, there would be a pre-fight discussion. This even occurred with invading Norse armies from time to time. Though Viking raids are noted for avoiding open conflict, and if they were cornered, that raiding group might opt for something more akin to guerrilla warfare with ambushes and charges out of wooded areas. So in that case, there wouldn't be a pre-fight chat. But the major Norse armies sometimes did. 
So let's imagine that we have armies with a mutual view of honorable combat. In that situation, heralds from the two armies would meet and discuss the price for withdrawal. There was probably a fair amount of posturing during this interchange, probably a bit like haggling over the price of a car. You want me to pay what? Your army looks like they're all hungover, and that guy on the end, he looks like he's suffering from some creeping thing. I'll tell you what. I'll give you this necklace to go away. And that's just because I don't feel like fighting today, and frankly, you're a young guy with a long life ahead of you. I'd hate to have to kill you. So here's the deal. You get one necklace, and that's the best you're ever going to get. You can take it or leave it. And if the opponent decided to leave it, then the heralds would return to the battle lines and they'd prepare for war. At that point, quote, a shout was raised up, end quote, according to the Battle of Malden. Now, war cries are nothing new. They were employed long before the Anglo-Saxon period and long after as well. But Paulington makes a rather interesting observation that they would have had a slightly calming effect, as it would require everyone to take a deep breath before, you know, screaming bloody murder. So the warriors would have this rush of oxygen going into their blood. The war cry would also have steadied their nerves a bit by releasing some of the emotions of the moment. Like we spoke about earlier, these warriors would have been mostly teenagers. I mean, there are records of members of the Werod retiring at the age of 25. So they'd have all the usual emotions tied up in those turbulent years, in addition to the fear and anticipation of battle. Letting some of that out was probably a good idea. And it would also serve to potentially unsettle their opponents. On top of all that, I suspect it was probably also a bit exhilarating. Crowd dynamics are a funny thing, and something like a war cry probably would have had a unifying effect upon the army, which carries with it a whole host of side effects. Hell, even something as simple as chanting from deep within the supporters section of a soccer game can get your adrenaline flowing pretty hard. So I can only imagine that a war cry was a bit like a soccer chant on steroids. So after the war cries were issued, the armies would face off with an initial assault of arrows and thrown weapons. The idea here wasn't necessarily to win the battle, though that would be nice, but rather the idea was to break up the unit, create gaps, and demoralize the enemy. After the exchange, the armies would lock together in preparation for hand-to-hand -hand fighting. And here's where your mind is likely leaping towards images of shield walls. The shield wall, or in Old English, board whale, probably involved the soldiers being densely packed, shoulder to shoulder with their shields overlapped. But you probably knew that already, since it seems like Anglo-Saxon warfare is impossibly intertwined with the concept of the shield wall. But something that might surprise you is that we don't have any unambiguous description of how a shield wall was used and deployed. The dense pack of soldiers is our best guess, and it's based on the bio-tapestry, which shows shields overlapping. However, that's both from the late Anglo-Saxon period, and it's also not entirely clear, since you see a group of soldiers in that same tapestry standing in open formation. And that's the only pictorial evidence we have of the tactic. But assuming that pop culture is correct, and that the shield wall is exactly how we imagined it to be, how is it used? Well, as you might imagine, this would be best used as a defensive posture, possibly when confronted with a superior number of enemies or a cavalry charge. However, it comes with a fairly obvious problem, arrows and thrown weapons. If you're densely packed, it would be ridiculously easy for an archer to at least hit someone by firing into that mass. Additionally, it would be really difficult to advance in such a formation. Unless you're on an open and level field, you really won't be able to effectively maintain a shield wall while in motion. So if there was a shield wall, 
it was probably used by the side that wasn't advancing. However, the shield wall isn't the only tactic available. There are also references to wedge formations, which would have been useful for breaking through a shield wall since the strength of the wear rod would be concentrated at one point. Though that would also be a dangerous move because it's vulnerable to arrows just like the shield wall, and also it runs the risk of being enveloped. But maybe you don't want to be densely packed, maybe you want to be more spread out. Well, in that situation, you might want to use the open formation. And that might be best suited to a superior force since it would allow for mobility, quick movement, and also envelopment. It could also provide a little bit of defense against missile weapons during the advance since everyone wouldn't be bunched up into an easy-to-hit mob. But regardless of how they went about it, following the exchange of arrows and thrown weapons, the two armies would end up in close combat. Now during this clash, it seems like the leader was probably located centrally amongst his men, though also behind the frontline troops, and possibly with his own personal guard, since there are references to battles that seem to indicate that if the leader fell, that would be a major deciding factor. His role would be to maintain morale and encourage his troops. If the formation broke, things could take a disastrous turn rather quickly. So it wasn't just the Werod and their equipment. The leader's courage and charisma also had a role to play, and you wanted him close enough to keep the unit together, but not so close that he'd be cut down or, oh, I don't know, take an arrow to the eye? Anyway, the point is that the leader was more than just a figurehead. He was a necessary binding force maintaining the morale of the Werod. And he would be needed in a situation like this, because once the clash took place, the full horror of battle would be upon them. And I'm just going to read from Paulington's breathless description because he paints a hell of a picture. Here, reputations were won and lost, as men stood shoulder to shoulder in the thick of a furious and bloody melee. Here, sworn brothers tested the bonds of friendship, kings found out which of their men were as good as their boastful words of loyalty, and which had taken their bounty fraudulently. Here, dead and wounds abounded amid the flashing steel of axe, sword, and spear. It was in this melee that the forces of attrition came into play. Vulnerable shields would be hacked down to their metal bosses, which were nevertheless still usable for parrying and even in an offensive role as a spike. Spear shafts would be lopped and splintered, sword blades bent under the force of the blows they dealt, axes lost their heads, cutting edges were blunted through hard use, the metal twisted and cracked and its edges burred. Weapons were tested every bit as much as their wielders. Chances are, it was in this chaotic mess of swords, spears, and shields that the matter would be decided. But it seems like sometimes it wasn't. Open battle is exhausting, and even hardened warriors wouldn't be able to fight like that for very long before becoming fatigued. You can imagine the warriors drenched in sweat and blood, drawing deep breaths and trying to stay on their feet after such an exchange. Well, the Battle of Malden gives the impression that there was something akin to halftime, where the warriors would disengage, gather up their wounded and dead, rearm, and reform in preparation for the next clash. On the one hand, that makes sense. You just can't keep fighting like that. But on the other hand, it seems really weird to just be like, right, time out, time out, I need to breathe. But it looks like that might have been what happened. But eventually, one side would break. And it's hard to say exactly what would cause this to happen, since these people aren't exactly like us. Studies of modern soldiers have suggested that when a unit reaches 50% casualties, 
unit cohesion will start to disintegrate. And the first signs of that are an increasing number of soldiers who are just unwilling to kill. And that leads to the entire unit's willingness to fight evaporating along with their fellow soldiers. However, records of Anglo-Saxon morale are not nearly as detailed as modern soldiers. And their culture and training was different from our modern era. I mean, they had this thing where the Werod was supposed to fight to the death, even if their lord was slain. And they had a sense of fate tied to their deaths, as well as this concept of the weird and how it would protect them if they were courageous. So I'm not sure how much of the modern studies can be applied to the Werod. But what I can tell you is that from the records we have, armies would sometimes break, weird or not. And it seems like a lot of the morale of the unit was tied up in their leadership. If the king fell, the chances of the army breaking substantially increased. Also, much like the records of modern battles, fear can spread rapidly throughout an army, and having only a few respected soldiers break could lead to the entire army breaking. Now, an army fleeing was dangerous for both sides. Obviously, the fleeing army could get cut down by the attacking force. That's the obvious danger. But the flight could also be a feint, which is something we'll see employed expertly in the late Anglo-Saxon era. And in that situation, the chasing army's unit cohesion is lost since they're running downfield in a wild, disorganized charge. So when the fleeing army suddenly turns around and attacks, the chaos and surprise of that could devastate the pursuing army and destroy their morale. But even if the army isn't fainting and is truly fleeing, the chasing army is still abandoning any weapons and gear that they might have been able to salvage from the battlefield. And they're also leaving behind their wounded. And there would have been quite a lot of wounded. Yeah, I saw Braveheart too. But those lopped heads, dismemberments, and instant kills weren't as common as Gibson would make you think. Rather, if you were in the Werod and hurt, you were probably bashed or stabbed, and you just fell wounded on the field. Cut up pretty bad, sure, but you'd still be alive. So what then? Well, you'd be at the tender mercies of Anglo-Saxon medicine and all its glory. And horse dung. But the fact of the matter is that by chasing a fleeing army, a Werod would be putting itself at risk and giving up its position on the field, which meant potentially losing soldiers and loot. They might also lose the chance to give their fallen soldiers a proper funeral, such as on a pyre like in the Battle of Finsbur. So a clever king might choose to not chase down the enemy. It really depends. Now with all this combat, you might be wondering where the cavalry fit in. Well... The Anglo-Saxons didn't bother with cavalry. Crazy, right? I mean, they had horses. But the fact of the matter is that if horses were included as part of an armed unit, it was simply for transport, despite the use of cavalry by their Roman predecessors and the prevalence of mounted combat in British Celtic battles prior to the Roman conquest. And you might be wondering why. Well, there's probably a few rather good reasons for the lack of organized cavalry in Anglo-Saxon warfare. The main reason is they weren't training in it. Cavalry combat is complicated and quite different from infantry combat, and it also requires a whole host of new skills. Additionally, you need horses that aren't going to freak the hell out once men and horses start dying, and those aren't easy to come by. And actually, they also would have required training themselves. On top of that, if you want cavalry on the level of the Plantagenet era, you really want destriers. You know, those big, no-nonsense, kick-you-in-the-face horses. But horses in Britain at this point were kind of small. More along the lines of Shetland ponies. 
which can carry things, including people, but really aren't the best option for mounted warfare. They're just not built for battle. They're much better suited for the job of being Freckles the family horse. So what we're mostly talking about here when we're talking about battles is an initial discussion of terms, followed by a short exchange of missiles and brutal hand-to-hand -hand combat, with a leader encouraging his soldiers to press on, and maybe it included a brief break for halftime. And all of it might have taken place on an even battlefield that's marked by wands of Hazelwood. It's remarkably different from the image we grew up with, isn't it? Okay, remember the Romans? God, I hope you answered yes. So those Romans and their approach to weaponry was surprisingly utilitarian. The weapons were just issued by your superiors, and then you returned them after use. They were a tool, and nothing more. It wasn't like the famous speech in Full Metal Jacket. This is my rifle, there are many others like it, but this one is mine. No, these were just weapons of war. It was more like, here's your gladius, palace. Now try and stick the pointy end into that German, please. Now contrast that with a culture that's growing in Britain. Your weapon isn't just an anonymous tool. It was special. It was unique. It had a story and worth all of its own, and was probably handed down to you from your forebears, or even your lord. And you were probably aware of the great deeds that were accomplished with it. Your weapon was probably quite decorated, and even named, and often the name would use a combination of old English words to identify it. I won't run you through a full vocabulary of words and their translations, but members, I have a list that I put up of some old English words of war and their translations on the members section of the forums if you're interested. Now the great part about these names is the fact that they're rather poetic and descriptive. For example, you have Biadulioma, which translates to battle light. It makes you think that it might have been heavily decorated with garnet and filigree, and thus it sparkled, not unlike a vampire, in battle. These weapons, at least the more elite weapons, had stories of their own. Think about them not in terms of the sword Maximus uses in Gladiator. Think about them more like Excalibur. King Arthur is important, sure, but Excalibur is an important weapon in its own right, and that extends beyond its use by Arthur. I mean, it even has a sexy backstory with a water goddess. These weapons were a big deal. So let's talk about them, beginning with the spear. The spear was the most common weapon in Anglo-Saxon England. They're found in a surprisingly large number of graves, though maybe it shouldn't be surprising since it's rather common in northern cultures that all free men were allowed to carry spears. And spear is actually an old word that derives from the Old English word spear. Another word for it, though, is daroth, or dart, which derives from their word daru, which means to hurt or to harm. And given how poorly some of my friends play darts, I think that meaning still applies. Now, there are all kinds of spears, some more suitable for being held in hand-to-hand -hand combat, others more suited to throwing. And part of the problem with spears is that often what survives are the metal bits, so basically just the tips. As a consequence, figuring out the length of the shaft is quite difficult to determine on first glance. Well, at least that's what I'm told. And there are other things, such as decorations, which are hard to spot. So a lot of what we know about spears comes from the study of the spear tips, and then applying what we know of how other, similar spears have been used. For example, there are some spear tips that are long and barbed. They're called angon. 
and they would have been useful for hurling since they would have penetrated the shield and then bent sideways under the weight of the spear, basically rendering the shield too cumbersome to be useful. And we can surmise this because that's how the Romans used a very similar spear type. Other spearheads were more sturdy and seemed to have been more appropriate for hand-to-hand -hand combat rather than throwing. In general, though, the spearheads all have the same parts. It's just the size and dimensions of the parts that differentiate them. For example, they are all mostly connected to the wooden shaft with a socket, bindering, which would hold it in place, and then probably a couple additional binding bits, such as cord, which would really firmly hold it against the shaft. Now, the spear shafts were often made of ash wood, or ash in Old English. The reason for this is that it generally grows straight and fairly tall, which would have made it useful for some of the larger spears used in hand-to-hand -hand combat. A cord was probably wrapped around one-third of the way from the tip, which would have been the point of balance, and that would have been a useful grip for one-handed use. And they also typically had one loop that was hanging a bit loose, that could have been used for hanging the spear in storage, and also might have provided a way to keep the spear from being easily knocked out of the wielder's hand in combat. Now because of how common they were, and also the relative ease of their creation in comparison with other weapons such as swords, by the end of the Roman period and well into our period of history, there are a great deal of different spearheads, which suggests that there was a lot of experimentation and diversity in design and use. When it comes down to it, the spear really was the people's weapon. But its appearance in graves will drop off sharply once the conversion to Christianity takes place. And this might be because the Christians were just not crazy about anything connected to paganism. And much like how horses were connected to Woden, which is why we stopped eating them once Christianity caught on, with the exception of Tesco shoppers, the spear was also connected to Woden. So that could account for the sudden decline in spears and grave goods following the conversion. You don't want a symbol of the pagan idol in your Christian burial. That would just be, you know, not on. As far as how the spear was used in combat, well... Descriptions of the use of spears are fairly rare and often fail to inform us. But in general, you have three uses for the spear that probably would have been employed by the Anglo-Saxons. I know these aren't the only ways that you can use a spear, but I'm relatively certain that they weren't fighting like Shaolin warriors. So we're going to go with the three main ways. The first is throwing them. This is for the smaller and honestly cheaper spears. And this would have been employed during the initial engagement of ranged weapons. The second is as a two-handed weapon. This gives the wielder the strongest thrust, as he would have been trained to put all of his body weight behind it, but it comes with an obvious problem, namely that the warrior would be rather exposed. And that leads to the third method, using it as a one-handed weapon, and holding the shield in the other hand. And this would have been ideal for something like the shield wall, but essentially the plan for hand-to-hand -hand use of the spear is to keep the enemy back. Swords and axes are brutally effective up close, and the most experienced warriors would be armed with those. So if you're a free man, simply armed with a spear and maybe a shield, you'd best be served by poking like crazy and just hope they don't break through. So that's pretty much how the spear worked. Next up, we have the sword. The sword wasn't the most common of weapons among the Anglo-Saxons. In fact, they were so expensive that probably only high-status warriors would have been armed with them. As a consequence, they were socially important and impressive weapons, but at its core, a sword really is a pretty simple thing. It's just a blade and a hilt, right? Hell, you can even term the stone blades that were attached to bone and wooden hilts in the Stone Ages as swords. Swords can be crude or ornate, but it's all a rather simple design when you get down to it. 
Though of course, we're going to be talking about swords that will seem more familiar to you than bits of flint with a bone handle. Early swords from the Bronze and Iron Ages tended to be straight, flat, double-edged, and had a fuller. A fuller is a groove that runs down the center of the blade. You know that U-shaped indentation that you see on a lot of double-edged blades? That's a fuller. The idea behind it is to reduce the weight of the blade without compromising the blade's strength, and it can also function as a runnel as well. They would often have a crossguard, a grip, and a pommel, which counterweighted the blade. If you want to know why it's important to have a counterweight, get a heavy stick and hold it at the end and try and manipulate it. It's kind of clumsy, right? Now hold it in the middle. It's easier. Now part of that is because it's shorter. This isn't a perfect example. But a big portion of why it's easier is because you aren't fighting against all the weight at the end of the stick. But instead it's balanced, so it's moving easier. Anyway, in Germanic territories, the design of the sword transitioned to a long and narrow blade with a sharp point and a pretty shallow fuller. That suggests that Germanic tribes used the sword as a primarily thrusting and hacking weapon. And that design stayed pretty much the same by the time it came to Britain with the arrival of the Anglo-Saxon culture. You're shocked, I'm sure, given the close cultural contact. Now, oftentimes with these early Anglo-Saxon swords, you'll find that they're rather simple with hilts out of wood, bone, or horn. And there isn't much of a pommel. They're rather crude weapons. But by the time we reach the 6th century, which is where we are right now in the show, the weapons began to get more elaborate and detailed. Interestingly, their development parallels what was going on in the continent, so again, it looks like there was a fair amount of communication going on across the channel. Now, while the blade was fairly standard, with minor variances in England, the hilts varied wildly. A hilt was simply to protect the warrior's hand, since holding the blade at the tang would be a quick way to lacerate the hell out of your fingers. But for the Anglo-Saxons, the hilt was so much more than just a handy way to hold onto your blade. This was where the warriors could put their mark on the sword, show its value, and essentially say, this is my sword, there are none like it. Oh yeah, and look at all its majesty. And nowhere was that attention more evident than on the hilt. It was art. So we have poetry and art. The wear-odd isn't what you imagined it to be at all, is it? So you have gold filigree, garnet cloisonne, animals, possible runes, there are all manner of decorations that can be found on the hilt, and these warriors were doing us a huge favor by putting them on there. That's because by studying the decorations on the hilt, we're able to roughly identify when the blade was made, where it was made, and also spot cultural influences from other regions. If you're one of the fans of history who's mostly interested in battles and is pretty bored with culture, well, you probably aren't listening to my show because I've done a lot of culture so far. But on the off chance that you're one of the battle-focused listeners and are still on the fence and still listening, you really should be interested in all of this stuff. That's because even if you're interested in just weapons and fighting, those things are still tied up in art, aesthetics, religion, superstition, and social matters. What I hope you're seeing with these discussions is that it's all culture, even the blood-soaked battles. Conversely, you can't really understand the culture without also talking about warfare and weapons. It's just all part of the story. And while some sources only talk about one or the other, we really shouldn't do that. Just like we shouldn't segregate women's history, it's all just history. Swords, poems, men, women, kings, and serfs, they're all part of the same story and are all equally important. 
but I'm back on my soapbox again. So let's get back to the swords. So the early Anglo-Saxon swords are virtually identical to the swords that can be found on the continent. And like I said, that's not too surprising. You have cross-channel trade, and you also have craftsmen relocating to Britannia with a set of skills that they developed, naturally, across the channel. But something interesting appears at around our century, and that's the ring sword. Basically, a ring sword is a sword that has a staple riveted to either the guard or the pommel. And then a ring could be attached to that staple, though sometimes the ring and the staple were a single piece. They're kind of welded together. Now, there's two primary reasons for the ring sword that scholars often discuss. The first is functional. You could pass a cord through the ring and use it to attach the sword to you so that you wouldn't lose it in battle. Sort of like a lanyard, only significantly more badass and lacking in the I work for Microsoft vibe. The other reason is because one of the king's roles was as the giver of rings. The rings were the physical embodiment of the bonds of loyalty and duty between the warrior and his liege. Think about it like a wedding ring. The ring wasn't the oath itself, but it's definitely a symbol of it. Interestingly though, it doesn't look like the kings had rings on their swords. Also, it looks like the rings were sometimes removed from swords. Now, rings being removed upon the death of a warrior seems like the most likely situation. But could you imagine the shame of having a ring removed from your sword while you still lived? Okay, in addition to the sword, there's also the scabbard, or sheath, which is actually an Old English word. These were a fairly simple design, but elegantly so. It was generally two pieces of wood joined together, and then wrapped in leather, and then they had a wool lining on the interior. The wool, in addition to making it slide easier, provided lanolin, its natural oils, which would have prevented the blade from rusting. However, there's a fairly obvious problem with this design, isn't there? The top is just going to get frayed and splintered and all kinds of nasty as the blade is used or just as the hilt is jostling around. So to combat that, they would sometimes decorate the top of the scabbard with metal, which would have both protected the scabbard and also given them a little bit more of what Kathy Schindler at the Potteries Museum referred to as bling. There also would have been a metal bit at the end called a chape, and that would have prevented wear from when the scabbard inevitably collided with the ground, trees, or random clumsy peasants. The whole thing was then attached to a baldric that was slung over the right shoulder so that the blade was resting on the left torso of the warrior fairly high up. And this would have allowed him to draw the weapon easily if he needed to, but also would have allowed him to walk, run, and ride. And actually, it was only in the late Anglo-Saxon era that they started to wear their swords from a waist belt. Reenactors, I hope you're taking notes here. I've seen far too many blades on waist belts. Now from the Staffordshire Horde project, you might recall the presence of sword pyramids. They're pretty much unique to England, and they were present at this point in time. However, they disappeared by about the 700s. Now some have argued that this was sort of a peace band, but that isn't conclusively established. From their design, it looks like they were used to fasten their swords somehow, probably in connection with the scabbard, and they definitely seem to be fashionable given their decoration, but exactly how they're used isn't 100% known. You might also recall from those episodes that the Anglo-Saxon smiths often used pattern welding to create the blades, and actually, this technique was just about to hit its peak in our story at around the end of the 6th century. Essentially, what they did is take two metal rods, twisted them together, welded them through the application of heat, and then beat the blank into shape to create the core of the blade. 
It's a lot more difficult and time-consuming than simply casting the blades, which is what you see in films like Conan the Barbarian. However, that time is worth it because pattern-welded blades are stronger and are also quite beautiful. Have you ever looked at a blade and seen the wavy change of color along the edge? That's from pattern welding two rods that have different amounts of carbon and phosphorus blended into them. And as for strength, what makes this technique so special is the fact that they aren't brittle, but rather they have a certain amount of flex to them so that they won't break easily in battle. The twisting also gets rid of a lot of the slag, which is a good thing because slag is going to reduce the quality of your steel. Now once you have your core, it would be combined with a steel shoe, and the shoe would be attached to the sides and tip, and that would provide the blade its edge. And something that I found rather interesting is that this steel was top quality. In fact, the steel made by the Anglo-Saxons of this period is only equaled by modern manufacturers, according to Dr. McDonnell, and it was significantly better than both Roman and Norman steel. Dark Ages indeed. Okay, so their steel was really good, and they were using a method that created a beautiful and durable blade. But the question that you might be asking is, did they know this, or was this mostly because of aesthetics? And that is a completely valid question. And of course, I'm going to tell you that we don't know for sure. They definitely were more effective weapons, but they were also more impressive to look at. And considering the effort that was put into decorating the blades, as well as the attention and worth placed on prestige items, such as swords, it's not completely out of the realm of possibility that elite warriors wanted the fanciest looking weapons. And pattern welding looked pretty damn fancy. Something else to keep in mind is the status of the smith. We're still in an era where a truly gifted smith was something of a mystical individual. I pointed to Tolkien repeatedly, but that's because he's a complete Anglo-Saxon geek. And I'm going to point to him again here. You see, having the shards of Narsil only be able to be reforged by the power of the elves taps into that general sense of magical power contained within metalworking. And that sense in Middle-earth that Tolkien was writing about was something that he definitely pulled from Anglo-Saxon history. That's how the Anglo-Saxons saw it as well. It was special. Now, by the 7th century, pattern welding fell out of favor, probably because the quality of steel improved to such a level that they didn't really need to use a lengthy pattern welding process. Though it did come back into vogue by the late Anglo-Saxon era, possibly more for the sake of appearance than anything else. You see, the use of pattern welding on the core of the blade, for example, would have made the inscriptions on the blade pop right out. They would have been absolutely beautiful and brilliant. So to return to the question, was this for aesthetics? Probably not at first, but it probably did end up that way eventually. Now, how did they use the sword? Well, given the typology of the 6th century Anglo-Saxon swords that we've been talking about, it was probably primarily for slashing, but it could also have been used for hacking and thrusting. And based upon skeletal remains, it was clearly powerful enough to cleave through a skull if needs be. As for tactics, the Anglo-Saxon sword could be used quite effectively with a shield, which would provide for additional protection. But it also could be wielded without and still be able to protect the wielder through parrying as it was suitably light and maneuverable. Fans of D&D will be pleased to know that dual wielding was a real thing. And it appears in northern sagas and literature. But as for whether it appeared in England, judging by the grave goods, if it did, it would have been really rare since we haven't found any unambiguous graves that would indicate that the warrior was a dual wielder. 
So my guess is that it probably did happen on rare occasions, but it would have been really strange when it did. Now axes, or axe in Old English, aren't that common in England. And it appears that given the choice between a sayaxe and an axe, the Anglo-Saxon warriors would have typically opted for the sayaxe. Granted, late in the Anglo-Saxon period, once the full weight of Danish influence was brought to bear upon England through rulers such as Canute, you did end up with more axes showing up. But in general, if you're going to imagine Anglo-Saxon warfare, spears and swords should be what you imagine. And if you're asking what a sayaxe is, it's basically a short sword or a serious no-nonsense knife that's been pattern welded with one side filed down to an edge, rather than the double edges like the swords. They were rather fearsome weapons, and were the namesake for the Saxons, actually, the people of the Sayax. And interestingly, while pattern welding went out of fashion for swords, it was still used in the creation of the Sayaxes. Why? We're not sure. Maybe it was tradition. Maybe the Sayaxes were just special. I don't know. So that's pretty much it for Anglo-Saxon weaponry. There were other weapons, especially later on, such as war hammers and bows, but in general, the heavy lifting of fighting was done with a sword and a spear. So today we're going to talk about defensive equipment. I mean, what's the point of all this training if you're going to die right away in battle? So you needed a way to keep you alive and healthy for as long as possible. So defensive equipment is kind of the way to go. As you might imagine, the shield, or board in Old English, is a key piece of equipment in Anglo-Saxon warfare. And unsurprisingly, the shield is one of the most common items found in the graves from the pagan period. Though that's probably not a surprise for you since we've already discussed the most widely known Anglo-Saxon battle tactic, the shield wall. But the fact of the matter is, you might not be aware of exactly how Anglo-Saxon shields really worked. I mean, sure, they worked by blocking their attacker and they are made up primarily of lathes of hard wood with a metal or leather rim, so you probably do understand the basic bit. But it's common to imagine shields, especially large shields, with an armband and a handle set off center. Like a riot shield. And that makes sense because it gives you better leverage and control. I mean, that seems like it's the obvious way to use a shield. But that's not the way the Anglo-Saxon shield worked. Rather, they just had a handle right in the middle. Have you ever looked at a shield and wondered what the deal with that metal bit in the middle was? Well, it's an effective bashing implement, but really, what was the boss for? And that's the technical term for it, the boss, rather than metal bit. Well, it was to protect your hand while you're hanging on for dear life. What they would do is they'd cut a hole in the center of the shield and then attach to that hole the metal boss. And inside that would be your handle, which was generally metal with wood around it to give you something more to hold on to and it would also be easier on your hand. And if there was padding, and I really hope there was, the rest of the boss would be tightly padded in to keep your hand from getting smashed. Now usually the hole was circular, but sometimes it would be cut into a D shape, and that would probably be less comfortable to use, but it also would have made the shield more durable since less material would be removed from the board itself. The boss itself would be rounded or conical in shape and sometimes had a spike attached to it, which would have made for a rather fearsome shield bash. And can you imagine how dangerous it would be to rush a shield wall with spiked conical shield bosses all lined up against you? And actually, Paulington argues that this wall of shields was significant beyond the obvious defensive qualities. It would have also created a psychological boundary between friend, which is an old English word, and foe, or fiend as they would have said it. So it might have been a tangible barrier between us and them. 
Now the size of the shield tended to vary, but the most common size appears to have been about between 18 and 26 inches. Though some were as big as 3 feet, or as small as just over a foot. And chances are the size of the shield would depend on the strength and size of the warrior who was handling it. Though it's hard to say for certain since a lot of these shields are grave goods, and there might have been some level of inflation to reflect the deceased's status rather than an indication of what he actually used in battle. Cuthbert was one hell of a warrior, let's give him the biggest shield ever, that sort of thing. Now the board was constructed by planks that were probably laid side by side. They might have also been entirely covered by leather, which would have been applied wet and then allowed to dry while attached on the shield, which would cause it to tighten across the board. And this would have strengthened the shield and also would have provided some amount of protection from water damage. Now some of these shields, such as the beautiful shield found in Sutton Hoo, were decorated to reflect the status and majesty of the wielder. But whether the shields were painted like Viking shields isn't really known. I would like to imagine that the Werod and later units of the Ferd might have emblazoned their shields with heraldry. But we don't have any archaeological evidence showing how they decorated their shields other than with metal fittings. So we just don't know. Now, if you've been watching the History Channel soap opera Vikings, you might have noticed the Anglo-Saxons armed with what appear to be convex shields. You know, the smaller ones that are shaped a bit like dishes during that battle on the beach. Well, those curved shields do appear in some imagery, but there isn't much archaeological evidence to support them. But if this shift did occur, it might have reflected a change in tactics away from the defensive nature of the shield and towards individual hand-to-hand -to -hand combat, since the curved shields would have been much more conducive to that. But ultimately, we don't know. And that's pretty much it for shields. What about body armor? If we're basing our talk on the Vikings TV show, you're likely thinking that all Anglo-Saxon warriors had iron or steel body armor that sort of looks like a metal-reinforced brigandine chest piece. And that was probably based upon one of the images at Sutton Hoo. There's a rider that has his spear raised up, and his body is, well, mostly covered by a shield, but the bit that isn't covered might have a harness that has metal plates attached. But it's not exactly clear. And also, we've got to ask ourselves, is this representative of actual Anglo-Saxon gear? Might it just be a depiction of Woden, given the presence of the horse and the spear? We don't know. So determining exactly how the Anglo-Saxons would have dressed is fairly difficult to deduce because, well, we've got only a few descriptions, and those descriptions often seem to be contradicted by the archaeological record. For example, we know that metal burnies, or in Old English, berna, did exist in Anglo-Saxon England. However, the presence of mail in Anglo-Saxon sites is really rare. Even male accessories are rare. Now, it is true that the Sutton Hoo helm has descriptions of warriors dressed in mail, but it's impossible to tell how common that was. And it's entirely possible that body armor is a sign of extremely high status. What we do know is that it will become more prevalent later on, once there's a serious problem with invasions, the Danes, and the like. I mean, in 1008, Athelred ordered that his domains provide mail coats and helmets for the military, as well as ships for that matter. And what he wanted was one mail coat and one helmet for every eight hides of land. This would have ensured that if the third was called up, many of them would have been well equipped and protected, which is a good idea. But that's in the late Anglo-Saxon period. Hell, it's less than 60 years before the Normans started running the show. And the period that we're talking about is over 400 years earlier. 
That would be like saying, clearly there were cars in the 1600s. Just look at the licensing laws of the 20th century. So it's really hard to say what they were wearing in the 6th century. So, were they kitted out like the Anglo-Saxons in the Vikings TV show? Probably not. Maybe the highest ranking individuals had metal burnies, but for the vast majority, you're probably looking at cloth and leather armor. Not as sexy, but what can you do? And the lack of mail is probably for good reason. It's really time consuming to produce. On a basic level, it isn't super complex. You need iron, water, fire, and basic blacksmithing tools that virtually any blacksmith would have. But the trick would be in creating the rings and then attaching them. Essentially, all mail is, is a bunch of interlaced rings, right? The idea was to create something supple that would also protect the wearer from harm, mostly. Now to do that, you need to create iron wire. And they probably would have done this one of two ways. The first would have been through drawing, which involved pulling the heated metal through ever smaller channels. The other was called swaging, and that would have involved hammering the heated metal into, you guessed it, increasingly smaller channels. You're just making it smaller and smaller and smaller. And what you're after is wire that's about a millimeter to a millimeter and a half in diameter. They would then wrap it around a rod that was about 10 millimeters in diameter, and this would allow for uniformity in size. Then the blacksmith could chisel the wire off the rod, and he'd end up with a bunch of 10 millimeter links. Each link would have four links attached to it. And for every four closed links, there would be one open link, which would allow them to actually loop them in. And the trick would come in closing that final link. This would be done either through welding, which would be incredibly hard to do because if you made a mistake with the application of heat, you just ruined part of your burning. Alternatively, you could rivet the links by flattening the ends of the link, punching a hole through the two ends, sliding a smaller wire through the hole, and then beating it all together. Either way, this is going to take a serious amount of work. And in the end, all you've done is joined five links together. Keep in mind that a Bernie could easily be over 20,000 links in total. And that means it would be over 25 pounds and also more than a mile worth of wire. And then once you have it made, you're going to need to maintain it, which means replacing the links, which would have required either welding or riveting. And it also would have required regular care to prevent rusting. And God help you if you let something that valuable and time consuming to make rust. And so they probably would have used something like animal fat to keep it in good condition. Now, when you have a population of subsistence level farmers, with the exception of the extreme upper echelons of society, the idea that people would have the spare resources to be able to have something like this seems a bit unlikely. And even if you did have that much wealth, would you really want to spend it all on a single piece of armor? So that really could account why we just don't see them except for very rarely in the archaeological record. I mean, this was a luxury item. And even with a skilled blacksmith, it would have taken over a month, or more likely many months, of constant work to produce. And on top of all that, if you had one made, would you want it buried with you? Probably not. These would have been heirloom items. So that too could explain the dearth of evidence we have of mail at Anglo-Saxon sites. So there you go. Mail was there, but it was probably rare and was probably handed down whenever possible. Oh, and if you were wearing mail, it would probably be best if you wore it over a leather jerkin for the extra protection and padding, as well as to protect your clothing and, you know, to avoid having your chest hair yanked out as you ran. Now, last up are the helmets. Oh, those helmets. 
So to return to the Vikings TV show, if you watched it, especially that damn beach battle, you might be under the impression that the Anglo-Saxons were awash in helmets, that they were lousy with the damn things. Kings, soldiers, kids, random dogs, everyone gets a helmet. But here's the thing. A wide dispersal of helmets in the early or even middle Anglo-Saxon period is incredibly unlikely, despite how great it looks on TV. For a bit of background, Germanic cultures really weren't that into helmets until the Romans made them look cool. And even then, they don't seem to have made it over the channel into Britain following the withdrawal of Rome in any serious way. Now, interestingly, the word for helmets comes from the Old English word helm, and that itself derives from their word to hide. And I suppose that makes sense, since it is hiding the wearer's head. But this also makes the analysis of the literary record rather difficult because, as Paulington points out, helm might actually mean any sort of clothing or item that hides the wearer, at least in the early period. Now, as I said earlier, it wasn't until 1008 that we see helmets becoming more common amongst the military, and it wasn't until Canute that helmets became compulsory. But that isn't to say that head protection never existed among the Anglo-Saxons in the early period. There are some bits of evidence that do point towards some use of head protection by some members of the warrior elite. And we do have the four famous helmets that have been recovered. Though unfortunately, there are just those four helmets. Sutton Hoo, Benty Grange, Wollaston, and Coppergate. And that alone seems to be a strong indication that these weren't that common. But if I give you a straight answer without muddying the water somewhat, this wouldn't be the BHP, and it definitely wouldn't be a discussion of the Anglo-Saxons. So try this on for size. There are some illustrations that show Anglo-Saxon warriors sporting headwear. And the styles of the hats, or helms, that are shown could easily be produced in leather. And leather is often invisible archaeologically, unless we get really lucky. So did they wear head protection? I don't know. I'm pretty sure that metal helms, much like metal body armor, would have been incredibly rare. But I can't say the same thing about leather. We just don't have enough evidence to say one way or the other. Which brings us back to the Vikings TV show. Even though it is taking place in the late 700s and early 800s, I'm just not buying the idea that you'd have a large group of warriors in matching iron or steel reinforced brigadine armor and iron or steel helmets. That seems more like a Hollywood flourish rather than something that would have actually occurred. But it's a soap opera on the History Channel, so what can you do? It's still fun. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash britishhistory. And we're on Twitter. Just search for at britishpodcast. And you can also join us on the forums. Just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Click get involved and click forums, and we'll see you over there. All right. Thanks for listening.